Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with the former head of the MLB Players Association, Donald Fear. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast, I'm Brett Boone. Today on the program, we've got a household name who could be one of the most polarizing figures in all of sports. As players, we love them. Owners, sometimes they don't love them. And fans, I think you're going to hear a different side of my guest today. He's a former executive director of the ML Players Association from 83 to 2009. And he's the current executive director of the NHL. He's one of the smartest men I know. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Donald Fear. Donald, thanks for coming on the program. Uh, nice to be with you. We've known each other for a long time now, so it's always a pleasure. It's been a while. All right, right out of the gate. How thick is your skin? In your line oh, of work, about as thick as it needs to be. Um, I mean, in your line of work, kind of I mean, you're wearing the villain eye, hat all you, you the time. You got to understand from the beginning that people are going to complain about you. They're going to have strong opinions. A lot of it will use hyperbolic language. It won't be thought through all that well. And you just go on and, and do your job. And what's always interesting to me is that that is precisely what every professional athlete goes through because every fan has an opinion on everything you do in every game. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and my time, and, and we'll get to it a little bit later, you know, my time uh, during our negotiations, the learning process, the ed- education I got uh, under your tutelage, it's remarkable, and and to to all the players playing today, I, when whenever I talk to them, and, and there's a uh, there's a union meeting or, or there's a there's a bargaining agreement coming up, I always encourage them, at, at least at the, at the very least, educate yourself on the process, get in those rooms, get in the trenches. It, it's quite a fascinating thing. Donald Fear is a young as a young kid growing up, Prairie Village, Kansas. It's where it's where it all began for you. Tell me about Donald Fear as a kid. Did you play sports? Uh, if so, what was your favorite? Who'd you Who'd you grow up rooting for? As, uh, from a fan standpoint, but that's <clears throat> sort of an interesting question. My father might well have been a professional tennis player. World War II ended that, uh, and he didn't. And he, he always wanted me to play tennis. But my athletic skills are um, obviously lacking, shall we say? And so, you know, I played intramural. I played with people in the neighborhood, enjoyed throwing passes, enjoyed playing uh, first base. But I I was hopefully self-aware enough to understand that for me it was just fun and games and a way to enjoy myself and uh, have some companionship. Growing up, it was really simple. Prairie Village, Kansas is suburban Kansas City. And so I grew up rooting for the Kansas City A's, who um, had the unmitigated gall to pick up and move to Oakland in 1967 when I was 19 and then start winning everything in sight for five or six or seven years, as, as I recall. But I used to go out to Old Municipal Stadium before Kaufman was built, um, <clears throat> which was downtown, very close to where the Negro Leagues Museum is now. Um, and me, often my younger brother Steve, and, you know, 250 or 300 other people would watch a major league game. And we all 
came down to the front by the third inning because uh, nobody was sitting there. Yeah, and, and I ask that question always. And, and Donald, knowing you, now, I wouldn't say, now Donald was probably a star quarterback. That's, that's not what I'd probably think. But sometimes I ask those questions, you never know the answers you're going to get. So I was interested uh, on you growing up if, if you were. But you were a fan of Kansas City. Uh, you went to Indiana University. Was was being a lawyer was being a lawyer always the plan for you? I I think it was always as much of a plan as as anything. When I think back on it now, sometimes I wonder would have been better off going into engineering or some form of of science, probably physics. Uh, but at the time, you got to remember the the country was in a convulsion. We were going through uh, Vietnam and its aftermath. Um, what the law meant, how it would work, could it keep the country together, was sort of uh, a center of uh, discussion and process. And <clears throat> law school, unlike a lot of graduate school programs in the hard science disciplines, is only three years and you can get out and uh, make a living. Having said that, um, I always enjoyed debates trying to frame the issues in a particular discussion in a fashion to get to the result that I preferred or I thought was uh, appropriate. And when you try a case, it's a bit of a game in the sense, you know, there are rules, what questions you can ask and what you can't. There is a referee, we call the referee the, the judge, and there are people out there making decisions. And that had an interest for me too. Now, of course, after you get out of law school, you discover it's not quite the way you envisioned it to be when you were a kid. You go to University of Missouri, Kansas City Law School, graduate there. What's your, what's your first job? My first job out of law school was clerking for a federal trial court judge. I uh, spent two years, a guy named uh, Elmo Hunter, a uh, weird small sports connection. His daughter married into the Hunt family that owned the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, but at that time, I wasn't concerned about that. And I learned how to try cases, and I learned how to practice in the uh, federal courts. And left there after two years, went to a small union-side labor law firm because they would give me the opportunity to front chair some trial litigation. A lot of the big commercial firms would not do that. I was too young and didn't know enough, they thought. But that firm represented the United Steelworkers of America. And when some eight weeks after I was there, two years out of law school plus about a month, um, Ewan Kaufman, who was the owner of the Kansas City Royals, filed the lawsuit to try and stop the Messersmith the McNally case, baseball's free agency case. And as a result of happenstance, because that firm represented the steelworkers, and that's where Marvin Miller, the then executive director, and Dick Moss, the then general counsel, had come from, that firm ended up being asked to serve as local counsel on the case, and I ended up uh, doing the work. Um, right place, right time, it turns out. Yeah, because that, that's what I was interested about, because I was going to say, the Player Association, they find you, you found you find them, but it kind of just happened to be where you were at the time uh, with no plan in place. It, it just worked out that way. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it, and it was a fascinating case. Um, 
I got an opportunity to work with people who I came to understand were legendary in terms of their skill and advocacy for the players and their success doing so. And obviously, I made enough of an impression that they asked me to help out um, after that. The other thing about that case that I remember is actually learning how backward the baseball economic system was at the time, where basically you couldn't look for another job. You were stuck with one team unless you wanted to change professions. No headhunter could come find you. So we had to develop, and this was one of the early cases in which it happened, a whole new term for it. Um, a free agent in baseball is somebody who's has the opportunity to go out and apply for a job and then take whatever offer he gets if he's good enough to to get some. That's special in, in, in baseball. In the rest of the world, we take it for granted. Yeah, it seems like labor law. There's a fist fight every day. And your dealings with unions over the years, does it seem like, do unions always have to be at odds? They don't always have to be, but the system is set up that way. Um, first of all, unions and whatever bargaining rights they have, whatever bargaining power they have, is not um, something which arises naturally. It arises out of law. We have something called the National Labor Relations Act in the United States, which requires in certain circumstances the employer, management, and baseball, the owners, to negotiate with the union in good faith about terms and, and conditions of employment. Problem is, there is no safety valve in the system. Theory is, you are supposed to negotiate in good faith. Everybody is. Nobody actually knows what that term means. The only way you can figure it out is to have litigation after your dispute is over. Uh, so you negotiate there, but if you can't reach a deal, and you're not obligated to make or accept any particular proposal, then the law says that either side can resort to concerted action. Concerted action by management is a lockout or a threat to lockout. We're going to shut down the business and not pay anybody till you tell us what you want. Excuse me, you tell us that you'll take what we're prepared to offer. On the union side, you're basically saying uh, we are going to go on strike or we're going to threaten it and we will shut down the business and we will absorb the loss and pay and you will lose customers, you will lose revenue. Um, and in theory, that's supposed to push the two sides together, but it's adversarial by definition. The problem is it doesn't work in sports all that well. And if you can indulge me another minute or two, I can explain why. If United Auto Workers is in a dispute with General Motors, and General Motors is shut down, it's not making any cars, because there's a strike or because there's a lockout, customers are not terribly inconvenienced. They can buy Fords or Mercedes or Volvos, Toyotas. And therefore, management has this risk that it will lose market share to its competitors, which it doesn't like. Uh, the first problem is that in professional team sports in North America, the four big leagues, baseball, football, basketball, and hockey, there is no competitor. The game is shut down. There is no other baseball league for the fans to watch. And so that makes, on the management side, having a fight a little easier than it is in most industries. The other thing is that in recent years, um, the 
that if the sides prepare for a fight, having the industry shuts down, shut down, excuse me, does pinch. It does really cramp style, and it does eventually help to bring the parties together. But it can take a long time. Yeah, that's it's it's a fascinating side of the game, and and I remember growing up. And man, we've come so long. And like you said, the '77, the the, the Messer Smith and McNally, uh, where things started rolling. I remember talking to my grandpa Ray, and uh, you know, this is during my career, and this is probably mid to eh, maybe early 2000s. And you know, players are starting to make some money now. And Gramps would tell me his war stories of back in the day, you know, in the '40s and the early '50s, and he's seeing the players, you know, making the money that they're making. Even though then it was great in 2000s compared to what it is now, that was peanuts. But I, I remember him saying, Brett, you know what? I went into my owner and we didn't have agents then. And, and, you know, we didn't have a union then. And I led the league in RBIs and I was making $27,000. And I went to my owner and I said, I need a raise. And that owner told him, Ray, I'm going to pay you $27,500 next year. And, and my grandfather said he was outraged. He said, what are you talking about? He said, I can... I can come in fourth place with or without you leading the league in RBI. So fast forward to 2021, you know, grandpa uh, fighting for, for his salary in 19, whatever it was, 51 fast forward to 2021. And uh, the salaries that the players, it's come a long way. It started with this and let's get back to that. It was the 77, the Messer Smith McNally. Uh, known as the seats decision, got rid of the reserve clause. Did you know how the game would change uh, because of that? Well, it's hard to say. Economic theory suggested that if you had competitors in the marketplace, more than one team could try and negotiate with a player, then if salaries were artificially low because of the reserve system preventing players from seeking jobs elsewhere, that over time, salaries would rise to whatever their market price was, reflecting much more accurately the player's true value to the industry. So Marvin certainly believed, and Dick Moss certainly believed, and I did, although without the experience at that time that they had, that salaries would rise and rise quickly. What we didn't understand, and I certainly did not anticipate, is just how fast they would move. They began to accelerate almost um, immediately. Um, And that continued more or less unabated as revenues rose. Revenues still have to go up to have salaries keep going up. Um, But the player's percentage then stabilized somewhere in the 50s, depending on what revenue you count, usually in, in the low 50s. And it grew with with revenues. Um, what that demonstrated, beyond any question, was the unfairness of the prior system. And when you think about it, it's really something. The, the owners do, of course, contribute a lot to the game. You know, they put up the financing. They make the uh, uh, arenas available. They make the stadiums available, depending on what sport you're in. Um They set up the front offices, they do the logistics, they sell the tickets, they do all those kinds of things. Um, But if you can analogize it to a concert, let's say, um, 
the promoters do all of those kinds of things, but there isn't any pretense that the real star of the show is the singer or the band. It's not the owner. It's not the, the promoter. That's who the people are, are coming to see. And I think over time, one of the things that sank in was that the fans come to see the players. I had a, a phrase that Marvin and I used to, to, to talk about a lot. Um, and it actually, we talked about it a bunch during 94, spring of 95, when we had, you know, replacement players. It had to do with the attitude of the fans. It had to do with the attitude of the people who would watch. And the conclusion was really pretty simple and to me is, is nevertheless profound. If you took everyone in the game who is not a player, even your brother, as brilliant a manager as he is, okay, if you took all those people today and got rid of them, coaches, managers, front office, scouts, umpires, broadcasters, anyone you can think of, and you change them all tomorrow to some way people no one ever heard of, but you left the players the same, the fans would hardly notice. On the other hand, if you changed all the players to the next best 850 players in the world, and you left all the other people the same, everybody would be complaining it wasn't Major League Baseball anymore. Yeah, it, it's definitely true. The talent is the talent and the and the secondary players. And and it's not a, a no, I know you're kidding. It's not a slight on Aaron Boone, but you're the manager, you know, and, and I, I have I talk round and round with him through his ups and downs and good times, good weeks, bad weeks. And I kind of just want to shake him sometime and go, you, you've been in this game your whole life. You've been around it your whole life. You know you have no control over what's happening right now, don't you? I know it's a little different when your name's on that lineup card. But, well, that's but you're okay. right. I, uh, uh, he won't remember this. But way back when, when he first got into this, I saw him somewhere and he said sort of half-jokingly to me, you know, do you have any advice? I said, sure. If you run into trouble, do whatever your dad tells you to do. Life will be easier that way. Well, so, better advice would be listen to what your your older brother says. He's wiser than both of them. That's what I would have told him. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> All right. So 77, uh, Marvin Miller, who you mentioned, who, who was elected recently to the Hall of Fame 2020, um, hires you as general counsel. And I've heard a million stories from Bob Boone. Uh, I want to hear from Donald Fear about, about Marvin Miller a little bit. Ah, well, this, this could be a long conversation, but I think I can summarize Marvin in, in four or five minutes, uh, uh, particularly for people who know him just as a name or an historical figure or someone who was either rever revered or reviled, depending on what side of the, of the fence you were on. Marvin was a child of the Depression, was born in 1917, uh, grew up during the Depression, and then had initial service <clears throat> with something called the War Labor Board, which kept industries operating during World War II. After World War II, he joined the union movement. Union movement was getting off the ground. National Labor Relations Act was only 12 or 13 years old. And the thought was that if employees bargained together, they would get better terms and conditions from management, from the employer. And he wanted to make his mark in that regard. 
After a few years, he joined the, one of the biggest, most successful unions in the world at that time, the United Steelworkers of America, moved to Pittsburgh, and rose all the way up to the point where he became research director and chief negotiator, if I remember right, for the very biggest national steel negotiations, including those that were in the White House during uh, the first part of the Vietnam War and so on. Um, and so when... He eventually found his way to the alleged union, Major League Baseball Players Association, in 1966, because it was a union in name only at that point. It really had never done anything. He came with a breadth of national union experience. He came with a fundamental understanding of what the employees could do if they were able to act in a collective and cooperative way. Um, and he understood something else. And you, you alluded to it a little while ago, Brett. You said that guys should get educated. In the end, the owners don't care at all who the negotiator is. And the reason is the negotiator doesn't work for them. They care what the players think. The players are crucial. That's why they need to be in the negotiations. But you need to prepare them. Because you learn a lot of things becoming a Major League Baseball player, but among those things you don't learn is how to negotiate major union contracts. Um, he was soft-spoken. He had a way of commanding the attendance, attention excuse me, of the players to such an enormous extent that you could actually watch them strain and, and move their heads to, to catch his words. Um, he would begin with basic facts. This is how much money comes into the league. This is what you get. Does that seem fair to you? Um, you sign when you're 17 years old with one team, and you can never leave them, even if there's a better job somewhere else. Does that make sense to you? We have a pension plan. You know, you're not out there working for a living. If you want a pension plan, we have to negotiate it, and then we have to see who pays for it, the players or the owners. And we have to remember that this is really important because you're not going to take your pension till 10 or 20 or 30 years after you stop working in the industry, after you stop playing. And he would take every issue, and he would go through that. Then in negotiations with the owners, he would use the opportunity with players present and participating to ask the owners or their representatives a series of questions which illustrated the point. And it was amazing for me to watch during my first go-round, which was in 1980, just how quickly the players picked it up, just how quickly they understood the issues, how important it was for them to participate, that they could make a difference, and that they had to. Because the other difference between professional athletes and most people that are represented by unions is that the careers are short. Um, people ask me what's the most pressure I ever had. They think it's some big lawsuit or, you know, the owners are doing something or Congress is grilling you over performance-enhancing drugs or something like that. It's not that at all. And I know Marvin felt precisely the same way. If you screw up a negotiation for a teacher, 
Then in three or five years, when you negotiate again, you can fix it, and you're fixing it for the same people. They're still there. You screw it up for professional athletes, 75% of the people will have lost their opportunity. Last thing. Um, Marvin was unfailingly polite, unfailingly gracious, but firm. I understand what you're telling me, Mr. Owner. I understand what you're telling me, Mr. You know, Commissioner. I understand why you have to feel that way, but I don't know what we're going to do because um, the players don't feel that way. We, we have a problem. There is not going to be baseball tomorrow. And I'll illustrate this with, with a story of how Marvin was able to make a point as a result of what the players understood and what the players did. Spring of 1980, Charles Chubb Feeney, out of the family that had owned the San Francisco Giants for a long time, before that the New York Giants, that goes back a long way, was president of the National League and, and one of the management negotiators. And we had scheduled a strike for the last week of spring training to make the point the players were not going to agree with what the owners wanted, which was to eliminate free agency, which had just been secured four years before. And I, I will never forget, um, Marvin leaves the room we were in and takes a telephone call and comes back, and he can't restrain himself. He started laughing uproariously. And I said, Marvin, what's going on? He said to me, Chubb Feeney just called me, and he said the players didn't get on the plane to go to the game the next day. I said, Marvin, what did, what did you tell him? He said, I told him there isn't going to be a game the next day. Didn't he understand that? Make a long story short, that strike was, was very, very short. There was never a threat. There was never um, an unkind word. There was, this is the way the world is, because this is what the players need. I think I rambled a bit there, but, but I hope I was able to make the point. No, no, it's well put. And it's, yeah, it's... It's interesting because it's almost what you're telling me is Feeney sitting there thinking, okay, he mentioned that, you know, that was just an off the cuff. He won't follow through with it, you know, and all of a sudden, wait, wait a minute, these guys really aren't getting on the plane. Maybe he's serious. And no, it's, that's, that's what people that's behind the curtain stuff. It's, it's cool stuff in, in, uh, in 1983, you take over as head counsel. It, it, the, the term interim is, is above your name. That changes in 85. But a young Donald Fear head guy, uh, what were your biggest challenges of the union? Uh, I have a few that, you know, when I, when I got involved, when we, we first met one another, and I was in the learning process, the educational process. I knew what frustrated me. I knew what the challenges were with my teammates that, that weren't involved in the negotiations and had no idea they could be on an island. And I'd call them with an update. And all they said to me is, Brett, get us back on the field. And that was frustrating for me from just a, a, a little old player rep. Um, but, but Donald Fear, 85, he takes over. Top dog. Biggest challenges for you. Biggest challenge, I think, was to establish myself with the players, first of all, that I knew what I was doing, I could analyze correctly, there was going to be no changes in the character or direction or essential functioning of the union, um, that 
we had a job to do, and that was to defend the gains that had been made in free agency in the upcoming negotiations, and there was going to be a struggle over it. And we had to, at the same time, impress management that they really shouldn't try and test the new kid on the block. It was not going to end well. You know, somebody comes in new, and, and very often somebody say, well, let's see what we can get from this guy. Let's push him around a little bit and see how hard he pushes back. And we had, in the summer of 84, um, a negotiation, or 85, I can't remember which. Um, and the owners didn't get what they wanted. They didn't get free agency eliminated. And then what happened is they began what came to be known as its collusion with respect to free agency. They basically fixed the market for three successive years. I'm sure you remember this vividly. Uh, and at that point, the challenge was to do two things, and they were distinct. One, whatever legally had to be done to right the ship. The owners were violating the contract. They were costing players money. They were acting in a, a, an extra-legal, outside-the-law, outside-the-contract fashion. And at the same time, you had to persuade the players that we understood the issue, we were going to do what it took to get it straightened out, but it required patience. There was a contract in place that had several years to run, um, and legal processes for big dollars take a long time to play out. They are not short. Um, the end result of it was, uh, of course, that we did prevail. The settlement that was eventually reached was $280 million in cash, which in 1990, if that's where it was, I think it was, was an enormous amount of money, um, particularly given the size of the um, industry at the time. Um, if I can point to something which allowed me and Mark Belanger, Gene Orza, Lauren Rich, my brother Steve, to successfully handle the 94-95 situation in which the owners were trying to impose a salary cap. It was going through that period, making sure the players understood and being able to um, set things right. Because that demonstrated to them in a fashion that words alone could never do, could never come close to, check just what was at stake. Yeah, and and man, there there's so many different dynamics from from your your position of negotiation uh, to what you're dealing with, what's going on. We're all independent contractors. Uh, you've got the rookies, you know, they're in making minimum. You've got the stars. They got their big contract. You got those veterans that are hanging on for one last payday. And, and you've got to weave all that into the negotiation. So, so it's not like you just have one group of guys that I'm going to go fight for him. It affects people in a different way, if that makes sense. Of course it does. Um, and I think you have, uh, very accurately described the problem that internal consensus building has to solve. Um, you basically have to say, all right, we can't have everything for everybody. We can't get this for this group if it's going to penalize another group too much. 
So how do we square this circle? How do we figure out how to come up with a set of proposals and a set of things players will fight for that is worth it, that makes sense, and in some fashion the players agree to appropriately um, assigns the risks and the benefits. And Major League Baseball Players Association had an operating philosophy. I don't now know whether Marvin ever articulated it, but I know I talked to him about it in the middle 80s uh, before I began articulating it. And it was not equality. It wasn't to, to pretend that every player was the same or worth the same or made the same contribution or was prepared to take the same risks or anything like that. But what it was was equality of opportunity. What we will do is we will negotiate something which gives you opportunities at various stages of your career to decide where you want to play, the length of contract you want, um, what the dollars are, and whether you want to take uh, uh, fewer dollars in return for more years for the guarantee, or whether you want to roll the dice, go with a one-year contract, and try and maximize. And so it was equality of, of opportunity, which was the operating premise. Um, and during my tenure, the players uh, all agreed with that, I, I believe without exception. You know, there were always some exceptions to everything, but, but I don't believe on that one there was. The, um, and, and on top of all that, you've got, you know, you've got players, the PR, and that, that's a whole separate entity. I mean, now all of a sudden, and this was the learning process for me, and it started in 94, which we're going to get to. But, and I remember, I think it was you that said to me, Brett, it's really going to be tough for us to win the PR war because everybody was always worried about how we looked, what we said, this and that. I couldn't imagine in today's game with with uh, the Twitter and the Instagram and, and and running these players today and keeping everybody in the same in the same camp. But these owners and this is what I learned. They own the newspapers. They own the tele, you know, the television stations. So if we're looking for good PR uh, to get, the, you know, the first thing they do is from a from a uh, negotiating standpoint is they put all our salaries in the newspaper and say, hey, fans, feel bad for these guys. And, and I think it was you that told me it's going to be really tough for us to win the PR war. We've got to win in different ways. You live through yeah, the council. I, I, I think that that's uh, pretty well put. Um, uh, sports teams have a an interesting way of relating to fans. It's not just baseball teams or hockey teams where I am now, but all the way down to college and all and all the pro teams. You will listen to the to the advertising. So if I walk down the street in Toronto to go to a Blue Jays game, my office now is there, there'll be advertisements. Come and watch your Toronto Blue Jays. They're yours. We want you to identify with the team. That's a great bit of the marketing success. Well, of course they aren't. But there is then a, a suggestion that the fans should identify not with the players, but with the entity in a way, with the unstated suggestion that if Don Fear would only sacrifice some of his vastly overstated salary, we could do something else, you know, over here um, that would make it um, – be better. 
Um, and then you have the group of fans who are fewer now than I think they used to be, but view professional athletes as not people that are working for a living, but are, are people that are playing a game. I, I had one conversation I remember with a fan. I know it was in Atlanta. You'll see why in, in a second in the late 90s. He came up to me, you know, what a great life all these people have. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, take our pitchers. He's talking about Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz, that great starting trio they had. And he said, what a great life. You know, if you're pitching that night, you show up at the stadium around 6 o'clock, you go out and pitch from, you know, 7 or 7.30 for a couple of hours, take a shower, get a rub down, go out, party all night, then play golf the next two days, sleep all day the third or the fourth day, and come back and pitch again. What a great life playing a game. And they have no understanding of what the athletes go go through when they do it. Um, and so, no, you're not going to win the PR war. So that when I would speak to the media and when Marvin did, there were only two groups we were talking to. The group we were talking to mostly is the players. Easy method of communication, especially pre-internet, pre-cell phones, and so on. Um, and secondly, you would talk to the owners. You would say things that might be difficult to say in bargaining or you wanted to uh, reinforce a, a message about. Uh, but you were never going to win, you know, the, the, the PR wars. It doesn't work that way. You lived through the, the canceling of the 94 World Series, as did I. How did we get there and why did it happen? I'll, I'll never forget those negotiations leading up to that and, and meeting with, you know, Bud Selig would walk into the room and, and here's this young Brett Boone just like, all right, here it goes. And all the owners walking in behind him. I always remember Bud used to sit at a higher seat than the rest of us. And, and I was just, a, I was a fly on the wall listening. A lot of veterans in that room. But uh, how did we get there? Well, um, this takes a bit of explanation, but uh, hopefully it won't take too long. Um, the owners resisted free agency because they knew it would cost them a lot more money. They had to pay players what they were worth rather than paying them a lot less. And so they resisted it in Kurt Flood's lawsuit. They resisted it in the Messersmith-McNally case. They tried to impose all kinds of restrictions in free agency in the bargaining in 1980, and particularly in 1981, which led to the first long strike. It was 50 days. They tried to do it unlawfully with collusion. Uh, and then in 94, they basically threw out the pretense. And they said, we want a salary cap. Now, what a salary cap is for anyone listening who, who doesn't really understand it, is something which says um, management essentially can't run its own operations. And therefore, we want the union to agree that the union will take less money for its members than it would be if there wasn't a cap, because we the owners can't control themselves. And therefore, we're going to lock you down, lock, excuse me, lock you out, shut down the business. Nobody's going to get paid till you agree to take less than you're worth. That's what a salary cap is. Uh, there are lots of other 
nonsense type of justifications for it, but that's the purpose. How much are salaries restrained? It depends on what the revenue percentage is that uh, is imposed. So the owners came in and they kept saying, we're going to have a salary cap, and players kept saying, no, we're not interested in that. We won free agency. We beat collusion. We have a deal. You're not rolling back salaries at a point in time in which revenues are really going up. And so we're bargaining through the course of the summer, and we then face a problem. The problem is that if we get to the end of the season with no agreement, the owners can simply change the rules, say we are going to uh, implement our last proposal, here's the salary cap, the players can't do anything about it basically till the beginning of the season. All the contracts are being negotiated and so on. And the bulk of the owner's money comes in in the second half of the season, so it puts the players at a significant disadvantage if they want to go on strike the following spring. Um, so what we decided to do was to set a strike deadline in August to give the owners an opportunity to realize that the players were not going to stand for this and that we had to reach a deal because everybody wants to finish the season, play the World Series, and all of, of the things that come with that. What we did not know at the time is that the owners had the bit between their teeth, so to speak, and they were determined to shut down the industry anyway. So we went on strike. We had some negotiations. They didn't go anywhere. And then Bud simply announced that the World Series was canceled. We're never going to give you anything except the salary cap. The sooner you agree, the better. And we were then in for a long period of entrenched, difficult negotiations. Um, in the end, as you will recall, the owners tried to implement their proposal, but they weren't bargaining in good faith. And the National Labor Relations Board and the courts found they were not bargaining in good faith and issued an injunction, a court order, prohibiting them from implementing the um, uh, proposals that they were trying to shove down the players' throats. Interesting footnote to history. There is a um, member of the United States Supreme Court named Sandra Sotomayor. She was the judge who issued the injunction against the owners in the spring of 1995. That's how she got on the map. Well, and, and I just remember back then, you know, we we were out. Okay, now we continue to negotiate. Remember Bud Sealing coming to the microphone, canceling the World Series, and then us as players are going, uh-oh, <laughs> now what? Donnie, Donnie, get it. What are we going to get a deal? And yeah, it did. And it, it was just kind of for, for the players that hadn't been through any type of negotiations and were, you know, new on the scene or had only been there a few years. It was really an interesting ride it, as to the point of what do you think is going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? We went through that spring training where they tried the scabs and, you know, that, Everybody was kind of looking, looking at that. Like you said before, it, it the fans change their mind when the second best 850 players show up. It ain't the same thing, but it was a real interesting time in history. And, and uh, wow, one of the biggest ones, World Series, never had been canceled up to that point ever. And it was. 
Yeah, and sometimes I, I think this is a, a dream I had, but baseball has always held such a, a place of central importance in the national consciousness that we had a week or two of negotiations in the White House in the cabinet room with the owners trying to uh, get it resolved. That failed. Didn't work. The owners wouldn't budge. They thought the players were on the run, and players didn't think so. Um, but it, it was uh, a process of explaining to the players what giving in to the owner's position would mean for the whole rest of their careers, telling them they got to be patient. And being patient is hard because you're sitting at home with nothing to do fretting. It's hard. So you have to keep in constant communication with them. The great thing is that we had senior players very heavily involved that were constantly on the phone with everybody else. And, we'll, and whenever we had somebody that didn't understand what was going on or wanted to get an uh, eyewitness view, just got them an airline ticket, and they flew in and participated in the negotiations. And it makes all the difference because when you see it with your own eyes, it's not possible any longer to delude yourself about what's going on. Yeah, and it's so... Uh, it's the little things too in those negotiations are so big and you know i won't go into naming the names or anything but we, we'd be negotiating along and all of a sudden it didn't have to be the, the greatest player the most famous player in the game but just a recognizable making some good money player just say the wrong thing off the cuff to a reporter here and there it gets printed in the newspaper and the owners kind of go oh hold on a second and I remember a couple of those hiccups along the way, too, where I'm just, you know, as a young player, I'm going, this guy just shut up. <laughs> he, first of all, he's not going to our meetings. He's not watching what's really going on. He's just out and somebody put a mic in front of his uh, in front of his mouth and he said some things that he had no clue what he was talking about, but he just wants to play baseball. So I saw that side of it, too, and, and how frustrating that can be, because the little things in that world of negotiations are big things. That's right, and it goes back to a comment I made earlier. The owners actually don't care what I say. They didn't care what Marvin said. They don't care what Tony Clark says now. They only care if the players believe and are prepared to back up the negotiators on those things. So when you get those comments, can it screw up the momentum of the negotiations? Sure can. Uh, um, first time I learned that... We were involved in the 1981 negotiations, first strike, we were out 50 days. Your dad was on the bargaining committee, and he'll remember this, I'm sure, like it was yesterday. Um, and we're talking, and we think we're closing in on a deal at about day 37 or 38 or something. Um, and a reporter for an LA TV station, if I remember right, goes out to Riverside where a bunch of the Dodgers are, you know, practicing, playing catch, and, and so on. And one of the players, my memory is it was Davey Lopes, but I'm not 100% sure, is asked, you know, how does he like being out at Riverside? He says, no, I'd rather be playing in Dodger Stadium, and then said a few other things. Well, the only thing that made the press was, no, I'd rather be playing in Dodger Stadium, and the owner shut down negotiations for a week until they figured out the players weren't breaking. We lost a week. 
Yeah, just for just for just an off the cuff comment that whatever, whether it was taken out of context or not. And and I remember just you know, taking kind of the words of, of the veteran players in the room, the guys that have been there, done that, telling me a young player, this is this is what we got to get the word back to the players. You know, at, at the time for me, it was the Cincinnati Reds. And uh, because you're right, something as simple as that just sends you off. I mean, a week and, and a week doesn't sound like a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's a huge deal, especially for, for the guys at the top gold. Would he just shut up? We have a problem on the union side in that regard. Management has gag rules. They prohibit the owners from saying things that aren't cleared by the commissioner and so on. We have this problem. We sort of believe in free speech on our side of the fence. And so we don't muzzle people. And that's one of the things that flows from it. On the other hand, um, making sure that players understand that nobody's going to try and control them and they have to be persuaded is worth the price because that's what help well helps to weld everybody together doing my uh, homework for this podcast i counted uh, give or take one or two but i counted eight big negotiations that you've been in six of them have ended in in strikes or walkouts which were the toughest ones for you well I think we can say that that the single toughest negotiation in baseball labor history was 94-95. That's the one where the owners wanted to play for all marbles, play for all the marbles they could, and to break the union. And the players just had to hold together for as long as it took. Um, That was the toughest one because... You look in from the outside and people say, well, what about this? Or did you try and persuade them about that? Or what about this argument? And what you want to tell them is this is not about persuasion. It's about leverage. This is not about fairness or equity. It's about what you can negotiate. And the owners would rather pay you less than more. You know, that's sort of the way the the world is. So that would have been the, I, I think, the toughest one. The one that was the chanciest was actually 2000-2001 in the sense that it could have gone off the rails but didn't as a result of a national tragedy. What happened was that Paul Beeston, former CEO of the Blue Jays, was baseball's negotiator in the summer of 2000, uh, excuse me, 2001. Um, and he and I thought we were closing in on a deal. And then the owners reneged, basically, on what the understandings were. Um, and it looked like we were heading for a strike at the end of September, which could have been really ugly because it was the first negotiation after 1994-95. We didn't because of 9-11. Everybody agreed just to extend the, the contract for a year. And I have often wondered what would have happened if we had actually gone over the edge because there had been a strike or a lockout in eight successive negotiations going back to before my time, um, before 2001. There hasn't been one since. Um, People came together. The frameworks of understandings um, had been reached, and the negotiations had been largely about – uh, modifying within the same basic structure. Um, 
But that one, if we had been forced to go out, I don't know what the result would have been. Behind the closed doors, when it's you and them, lead counsel and them, does it ever get personal? Not if you have professionals, no. does not. doesn't mean it doesn't get heated. doesn't mean you're not pissed off at the other side or they you. doesn't mean that, that you don't, from time to time, uh, get emotional about things. But it's not personal um, among the negotiators. Um, it can be more so, actually, between players and owners because – you know, they'll, they'll look at a player and say, you know, you work for me and I pay you and I support your family and you should do this. And the player would respond, right, and I have a limited career and you're trying to take money out of their my pockets and, and all this kind of stuff. But between negotiators, it's tough but professional, in my experience. I do not believe that was Marvin's experience early on. But you have to remember, by the time I got to my first negotiation, Marvin had been doing it in baseball for 14 years. The, the biggest, the biggest, you know, and this is just everyday life walking around fans, baseball fans, uh, whenever that gets brought up, the 94 World Series and, and a typical fan will say this. I, I'm going to give my take on it. Well, beers are $15 and an upper deck seat is is $50. And that's because you guys make too much money. And, and my answer is no, that's because you'll pay that much money when you stop paying that much money. We'll stop making that much money. I think about it when I go to a movie theater. You know, I, I get that that mug that that popcorn. It's ten dollars, and that Coke's ten bucks. And I think, what what am I doing here? Well, I'm paying it. I'm sitting here as long as I'm going to enjoy the movie. Nothing will probably be said when I leave the movie theater, and Tom Cruise will make twenty five million a picture. As soon as I stop buying it and stop going to the movies, he'll stop. Uh, am I am I accurate in that in that uh, depiction of what of what goes on with prices at the stadium? Sure, and and basically it, it's a pretty simple thing. The owners try to price on a marginal revenue product model, which is simply means this: um, can I can I have more total revenue having fewer fans and higher prices? or more total revenue, having more fans and lower prices? What's the optimum mix of ticket prices and fans to get me to the peak revenue number? Then when I know what my revenue is, at that point I figure out what I can pay the players. It doesn't work the other way around. You are are quite right, Um, quite right about that. And some owners early on figured out that you can increase your revenue by making the players celebrities. George Steinbrenner basically set out to make the players he signed in the 70s big-name celebrities. Um, uh, I know you know Reggie Jackson, and he had that famous quote that he's the straw that stirs the drink, if I remember right. He got panned for it. But what George Steinbrenner was saying is, this is a very special player on a very special team, and you should come watch him. Just like Tom Cruise is a great actor and he has a great performance and you should come watch him. That hadn't happened in baseball before. From a fan standpoint, what do you think we as players can do a better job at? When it comes to labor. It's hard to say in this day and age 
because the method of communication and the frequency of it is is such that um, it's hard to put limits on it. So if you say as a player, you're going to set up a, a blog and you're going to answer fans' questions, you know, and that's going to be your way to reach out and endear yourself to the fans. You can do that, but if you develop very many fans, it's physically impossible for you to do it. You can't. It's all you would do. And so what you end up with is you say somebody else will do it for you, or you get tried answers. Uh, but the conclusion I've come to is that what players ought to do is be the kind of individual that the fans both respect and enjoy. What do I mean by respect? Principally, you're going to do whatever you can to put yourself in the very best position to help your team win. That's what you're going to do, because that's the name of the game. The name of the game is to win. I can't tell you how many players would, would trade a lot of home run championships or batting championships for a couple of World Series rings. Um, and that's what the fans want. They want you out there for them with the kind of work ethic, dedication, perseverance, and skill that it takes to win. Secondly, I think what they want is for you to be a real human being. You know, human beings have flaws. They're nice sometimes. They're not nice others. They react sometimes. They don't react others. But at the same time, understand that, you know, players get paid what they get paid in the end, as you just so eloquently put it, because the fans are willing to pay money to watch on TV or to come to the stadium, and they want to feel a, a sense of appreciation. Um, and it's not very hard to do. Um, question is, is there a way players could do it better? And I think the answer is individually, sure. You can say Joe Jones could do this better, maybe shouldn't do that. He should follow what Sally Smith, the tennis player, does because that would end up with a better reputation and, and so on. But the players who want to speak out and want to become uh, noticed usually, you know, figure it out. Um, I've known an awful lot of professional athletes, as you know, baseball players for 33 years, hockey players for 10. I know a lot of Olympic athletes. I was on the U.S. Olympic Committee Board of Directors um, for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, he'll probably call me up for, for saying this. Best I ever saw was Deion Sanders. He, he has managed throughout his career to project the image of skill, professionalism, being a person, having emotions, getting the job done, and at the same time being respectful of the fans and, and the employers, I think as well as anybody I've ever seen. Wow, interesting. Yeah, Dion has done a good job in, the, in that department. I, I was a teammate of his, I, I think, two or three years. That's that's interesting, though. That's very interesting. Bud Selig, after the 94, you get the deal done. Um, what was your relationship with Bud? And I, I think the, the real question is, how'd he do in his tenure as commissioner of baseball? I, I, I remember I had a run-in with him, and it wasn't really a run-in. Uh, it was I was taken out of context at an all-star game and New York reporter kept badgering me, badgering me. And of course, I, I had to 
put him in his spot. So he said, Brett, what's wrong with the game? What's wrong with the game? And I said, nothing's wrong with the game. We're at the all-star game. This is a great time. You know, we're best players in the world are gathered here. And he kept badgering me. And I said, you know, what's wrong with the game? What's wrong with the game is that Bud Selig, the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers is the commissioner of baseball. And I think that's a conflict of interest. Headlines, New York, Boone blast Selig. Well, I didn't blast him. I said, factually, they made it look like I said it. I didn't know Bud Selig. I didn't know him, you know, on a personal relationship. I remember having a conversation with him when I got back from the All-Star game and he was laughing. He said, Brett, I completely understand a lot of people feel the way you feel about the position I've been put into. And there was no hard feelings. He shook my, you know, we, we, we had a talk when he came to Seattle, we shook hands and, uh, you know, the rest is history, but getting back to you, what was your relationship like with him? And how's uh, history going to judge how he did? Yeah, I, I, I would say business-like, um, you have to remember we, we use the term commissioner, because the baseball owners, way back in the 20s after the Black Sox scandal, wanted to make it sound as if, you know, this is somebody that was representing the government or something, um, the government commission. What the commissioner is, is the CEO of Major League Baseball. That's what he is, a businessman. He's supposed to run the business and do all those kinds of things. If you're in that role, what you also are is the chairman of the board of directors. The board of directors is each owner, and they all have a vote and you have shifting majorities on all kinds of, of issues. Uh, Bud had a, an ability unique in my experience in any of the four sports um, to relate to the individual owners. He had been one. He'd been the owner of a small income team so he could sympathize with those. Um, and he, as far as I could tell, on an internal basis, was an, an expert politician. He presided over a period of time in which revenues were climbing rapidly, mostly because of a growing economy and the advent of regional sports networks. Um, but he was able to, you know, ride the wave. And the fact that he was there as long as he was suggests pretty strongly that the owners were, you know, sort of happy with uh, uh, his performance. Were there any number of days I wished somebody else was there? Sure. Were there any number of days I wished he would just do what I suggested rather than something else? Of course. I'm sure he felt the same way, by the way. Um, <laughs> but it's not my job to tell the owners who they have to put in that role any more than it's the owner's job to tell the players who they should put in that role. And his job and my job was then to get along sufficiently well so that the business ran. That that you know that that was the um, that was the overall circumstance. Minor league baseball. I got a son in his first year in A ball, and uh, you know he says, "Hey, Dad, they're talking about doing this with a minor league union and getting us some more money." I laugh at him. I said, "How much you making?" He said, two thousand." I said, "I have no sympathy for you as a minor league player. You had you had nothing to the bottom line." And, and matter of fact, compared to when I played and when your grandfather played, you've got it pretty darn good. You get meals, you got nice new stadiums, clubhouses, and you haven't done anything in this game. 
I suggest you play better, get to the big leagues, and all your dreams will come true. That's just my hardcore thoughts on, on because I went through the minor leagues and, and I look back at my minor league career and I have a lot of great memories. Yeah, it wasn't the easiest. You know, we had to find the nearest Piccadilly because we weren't making any money, but that was part of the journey for me. And it made making the big leagues it, it, so much more rewarding. And it's like, you remember when I had to stay on that couch for those three weeks in a ball and in the Carolina league and, and look at me now I'm doing this. It made me appreciate the big league so much. And that's why today when, when I hear a fan or, or somebody on all oh, these players, they're overpaid, you know, they're making 500,000 as a rookie. I said, do you realize what these minor leaguers give up? They put it all on the line. They're all in. All their chips are in. Some of these guys have families, kids. They, they've got to send money back home. And, and when they finally make it, you're going to badger them and say they're overpaid. When they've put it all on black on the roulette wheel and it won. So I've got a problem with that. I love seeing the, that journeyman story that doesn't get to the big leagues till he's 28, gets five or six years in the big leagues. But, uh, my thoughts to my son on the minor league side. <laughs> am I accurate or am I being a little too harsh? Oh, I, in large part, the minor leagues, as, as they currently are constituted, are it's simply a training ground for major league players. You know, they're the ones that, that have yet to demonstrate that they could play at the level at which the money's earned. They're loss leaders. Minor leagues, individual teams aren't making a bunch of money, and the major league clubs are picking up the salaries. Could I make the case that it would be great if they got more? Sure. Do they have a lot of leverage to try and accomplish that? Um, not really. And so it's a, a, uh, a difficult prospect. But one aspect of what you were talking about is something, one of the two things I would really like fans to understand about players it is that, that the level of competition is so intense that when they say you're at your top of your profession, they're saying it in a fashion in which it's a smaller sliver of all the people that want to uh, engage in that line of work than basically anything else. Um, you know, the old joke is you go to the minor leagues and as you move up through the ranks, Every player you see at every rung on the ladder uh, is just as good as the very best players you saw you saw on the rung below. And you've got to see if you can compete. And the competition is ferocious. It's the only way. It's the only way I can put it, because the number of slots at the major league level are tiny. They just aren't very many. They don't grow very fast. And I don't see any prospect that you're going to have wholesale expansion in the major leagues that's going to add very many jobs. In addition to that, the competition is actually more intense than it was 30, much less 50 years ago, because you have far more people coming in from the Caribbean or from Asia with the possibility of, of uh, playing in the major leagues. And then, of course, you get to, uh, well, what should the players be paid? And then the question is, well, the owners are going to have all the income. The only question is, do you want the players to get a reasonable amount or do you want the owner to get it? You're not going to keep it, Mr. Fan. It's only a question of, of who gets it. Um, and so it's going to come out at that level in much the same way, actually, that um, the stars in Hollywood make the big dollars. There are a lot of working actors that will never make a lot of money because they don't have whatever the 
requisite skill or work ethic or just plain dumb luck to be recognized at, at the right time. And if I continue just a second, I said there were two things I would want fans to understand about players, and it relates to what you should be paid. The second one does. And that's this. Every major league player, and I believe this is true in all the sports, understands how fragile his job is, right? When you were playing, every time somebody tried to take you out of a double play, your career was on the line, right? Without every time you went after a foul ball and rushed fall and, and risked falling into the dugout or toppling over a fence, your career was on the line. You can't take it for, uh, for granted. Um, Major League Baseball careers, as they are in the other sports, are fragile. And that's even more reason that you need to be compensated for taking that risk, in my opinion. little rapid fire through the years. I'm going to throw some owners at you. Working with them. We'll go right off the top. George Steinbrenner. Um, brilliant businessman. I actually think an extraordinarily good PR person. He wanted the publicity, even if it was back and forth. Could be a little bit of a bully, but if you didn't work for him, that never came out. I always had a, a good relationship with him. He always did. He also did things that, that people didn't really know about. He was involved in the U.S. Olympic Committee movement, too, and he would give lots and lots of money away to athletes that were not in the revenue-producing sports. He didn't want anybody to know, and nobody ever knew. Just did it. O'Malley family. Traditional old baseball family. Um, Walter O'Malley was the one owner, with the exception of Bill Veck, who reached out to Marvin, wanted to talk to him, wanted to work with him, seemed to have more of a healthy respect for players than a lot of the um, – other owners did. I knew him a little bit, but but he was old and a bit feeble by the time uh, I came on the scene. Peter, I think, tried to carry on that legacy as as long as he could. They were also in a place in which, by today's standards, in which the Dodgers are worth I don't know how many billions of dollars, um, it was relatively small potatoes. Um, that said, baseball spread across the country is largely Walter O'Malley's doing. If he hadn't moved the Dodgers and then brought the Giants along, I don't know how long it would have been. Jerry Reinsdorf. Very smart businessman. Um, very tough negotiator. Um, somebody that I always found interesting to have a dialogue with. We disagreed on all kinds of things. Um, was never personal. He was, in many, for many years, one of the most hardline owners and uh, one of Bud's principal advisors, if I can use that term. A woman I played for, Marge Schott. I just kind of threw her in. I, I wanted that. That was my. Uh, that was my biggest question. What's he going to say about? I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> People of a certain age will know why we're t the two of us are, are laughing. Um, my biggest memory of Marge Schott is I'm at an all-star game in Cincinnati, middle 80s. Peter Uberoth is commissioner. And we're all supposed to be sitting down in her area on the first baseline somewhere. 
and she comes by with the dog. And I don't remember the kind of dog it was, except it was big. And she says, would you watch him for a while? And the dog jumps up in my lap, and she leaves for an inning. <laughs> so, that was Marge. Last but not least, the cowboy, Gene Autry. He was an interesting guy. Had grown up, of course, in the entertainment business. Knew what putting on a show was. Knew what selling was. Uh, wanted to get into it. Was never able in his tenure uh, to actually compete with the Dodgers. They were always the second team um, in town. I did not know him personally. Shook his hand at meetings several times. But by the time I got to see him, um, uh, he was uh, pretty well out of it. Uh, I did regret when, after he passed away, the uh, team moved its spring training headquarters to um, Phoenix, to Metropolitan Phoenix, because it was always nice to go to Palm Springs before that. As I mentioned, I talked to uh, – we had Reggie Jackson on the on the program about a month ago, and he had some interesting takes on a lot of things, from, from Kurt Flood to those early years in uh, – you know, playing for Finley and Oakland. Um, but he did say he really got into the, the, the arguments and the negotiations and the union of baseball. And he said, if everybody was a free agent, Booney, things would look different. What do you think about that? Um, if everybody was a free agent every year. Yeah, the, 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 argument, is, the argument is this, uh, that you're going to flood the market and that will push down salaries because it gives management more choices uh, when, if they're looking for a second baseman, for example, in any given year. Problem is, it's not good for players, not so much because everybody's a free agent, but because you're not signing a long-term contract then. And a long-term contract may represent the best value to you and the owner, and it gives the player security. I also don't believe it creates the glut that Reggie was perhaps worried about. And that's because it's a zero-sum job. If you've got 800 baseball players and 200 are free agents, you have 200 open slots and 200 people looking for them, not counting people that retire or come into the game new. If 700 are free agents, you have 700 open slots. It's a one-to-one matching. Donald Fear, how should the game remember your contributions? Oh, that's not for me to say. Um, first of all, I, I I don't know what the game is. Some sort of a mystical concept that's out there. Um, I will tell you that one of my greatest satisfactions is when I see a player who was a member of the MLBPA during my tenure and as often as not, was not very active, but will go out of his way to say now that he understands, he thanks, he appreciates the pension, he knows what we went through, he knows how chancy it, it would uh, could have been. And what that tells me um, is that players do get it. They do understand. They recognize not only what staff does, but what they did collectively with staff. And that gives me an awful lot of satisfaction. It, it, 
It really does. Uh, you know, I don't know what history will say. You know, my, my opinion is sort of out of sight, out of mind. I don't delude myself that um, I have the historical significance that Marvin did starting from a clean slate or, or anything like that. I just hope people will remember me as having done the job competently, having served the players well for a very long time, uh, and having been honest in maintaining integrity in the process. If, if that's the case, that's enough. Anything else is gravy. Well, that's awesome. Well, you've got one guy here that appreciates all your work and, and all the things you've done in this game. Uh, back from the very start, you've got a whole family here that appreciates it with with the Boone family. It's been a pleasure, Don, having you on the show. It's really insightful, really fun stuff that you don't get to hear every day that you know, a, a different level of intellect, and I always love it. Uh, the fans are going to get to see a, a different side of Donald Fear, really explain to them what what it's really like behind the curtain. I think we did a good job of that today, and I really do appreciate you coming on. What we do each and every time here on the Boone Podcast is we go back to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans. Dano? Gentlemen, how are you? Good. Doing good. All righty. Donald, this one comes from Rudy in Dallas, and he wants to know this. Do you have any friends on the ownership side? Sure. Um, both casual and professional and, and some personal. Um, I was proud to call John McMullen, who was the owner of the Houston Astros, uh, for a long time a friend. I've been on had an extremely good relationship with Paul Beeston for, you know, decades at this point. But not most of the owners. They have their own circle, their own circle of friends. Uh, I obviously don't have the, the resources, nor do I care very much to run in those kinds of circles. Having said that, being a friend of people in management um, uh, can be a good thing, but it's not a very important thing. Having and maintaining the kind of professional respect that gets the job done is what's important. All right. And a follow-up to that one. When you meet former players, what do they tell you these days about their time in the union? They're appreciative. They're thankful. They, they understand how hard the world is. They understand how it might have been different. Um, they understand what a baseball career with the salary and benefits that flowed from it meant for them and, and their families. You know, uh, there's something about professional athletes that fans don't really understand, and not because uh, I think they, they think the opposite, but because they never think of it. And that's this. Um, professional team sports have a physical aspect. And you have to have the physical skills. But that's not the game. The game is mental. The game is psyching out the other one. The game is having the kind of, of guts and competitive instinct that will get the job done. And the way I often phrase it is, you can't stay in the major leagues if you can't think in a straight line. It doesn't work. That's true in all the, the, the major sports. Um, so this notion that players are somehow incapable or uncaring and don't really understand what's going on or what happened, 
you know, there are always people that aren't paying attention. But by and large, that's just completely untrue, which is why they can succeed at the bargaining table um, in negotiations with multimillionaire and, and billionaire owners who have spent their entire life doing that kind of thing. I'll never forget, in, in 94, spring of 95, actually, during the strike, we were negotiating in the White House. I mentioned that before. And there were five, we, we had limitations on the number of players that co- could come in. Not that the owners imposed, Secret Service did, uh, that were there. My memory is uh, Jay Bell, Cecil Fielder, Scott Sanderson, Tom Glavin, and David Cohn um, were the ones that were there. And I got to tell you, I, I don't know what the owners expected, and I don't know what the people in the administration expected, but they were on a level playing field, to coin the phrase, with the top people in, in the country. Made me proud, actually. Wow. And then the last final question for you, and I think you probably just answered most of it, but who are other players that should get credit? Guys like Kurt Flood that made the most sacrifices for the union. Well, that's a very long list, but but, but let me start. Um, Kurt Flood was the symbol that galvanized the players. He was willing to put his career on the line in order to do what was right. And, you know, most people think Kurt Flood won his lawsuit. He didn't. He lost it. Uh, free agency didn't come until several years later. But he, he has sort of a special place you know, for for that reason. Um, and then secondly, I would go back, I think, to the players early on who were willing to be active and out front before the union was established, before they could uh, say for certain that it was, uh, uh, was going to work. Eddie Simmons, who will be inducted into the Hall of Fame next month, is, was one of those people. Um, the group we had in 1980 and 81, the, the eight key players, let me see if I can remember them all right. There was Bob Boone, of course, the de facto chairman of the group. Um, Doug DeSensei, Steve Rogers, Mark Belanger, Phil Garner, um, Don Baylor, I'm one short. Uh, Rusty Staub, I know, was around a lot. Tom Seaver was around a lot. Dave Winfield was around a lot. There's one that, that isn't coming to mind at the moment. I hope I'm not um, insulting everybody, anybody by, by forgetting. But they were there representing themselves, but mostly their fellow players, and playing the game of negotiations in an extraordinarily adroit way. And this is before it was expected of players. This was before anybody understood that if a group of players at the table made recommendations, all the players would back them because they knew them and trusted them. Um, And they were out there on a limb uh, uh, more than once or twice. Um, Maybe I'm just remembering that group because uh, I'm sort of nostalgic about it. I was a new kid on the block uh, at that point in time. But it it was quite something. And then... You know, leadership through the years, I can go through any particular uh, uh, period of time and and look for the leaders. Um, One other player I would mention um, who really went out on the line to demonstrate it was Hawk, Andre Dawson. 
we were in the middle of collusion, and he couldn't get an offer from anyone except what the Eskimos wanted to pay him because that's how the owners had fixed the market. And so he, along with his agent, Dick Moss, who had been Marvin Miller's first general counsel, came up with an idea. They were going to demonstrate to the world how much the owners were screwed up and how much they were um, valuing lower salaries over the will to win. What he did is he went to the Cubs and he said, I will sign a blank one-year contract. You fill in whatever number you want because I'm not going back to the Expos under this crazy system. And they got so much fan pressure that they eventually signed him for less than a quarter of what he was worth. My memory is he won an MVP for a last-place team the following year. Um, but what he did was put himself out on a line, on the line, in a quiet and dignified manner in a fashion which showed everyone, players and owners and fans, uh, what was going on. All groups have to have leaders. He was one. Well, sir, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. All right, but I gotta—I I have to say one more thing before I go. Go ahead. Point of, point of personal privilege here. You got I wanna, it. Uh, uh, wish Brett the best in 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 one regard. The one time I met Ray Boone, I'm pretty sure I told him that that he had become what my dad's definition of a successful parent was. <laughs> a successful parent is someone who has children who can support him. Um, and Bob <laughs> was able to do that. So Aaron or sorry, Brett, I'm rooting for you. You and your son. <laughs> My dad loves to hear that. I think he's doing. Yeah, I think I think he's all right. I think he's all right. See now, Don, I'm the oldest. Oldest, so I was. You know, everything was. Hey, Brett, get me, get me. Now I. Hey, your other son. He's the manager of the New York Yankees. Go bother him for a while. <laughs> Next time I run into him, I do once every couple of years. I'll. I'll, I'll tell him he owes you. I, I'm an oldest oh, brother, too. God, it doesn't even... It, I don't even know where to start how much that kid owes me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank, I'll support you, whatever you need. Thanks, you guys. This was fun. I appreciate it. Mailbag. All right, Boone, you know that sound, don't you? MB time. Mailbag. Mailbag. All right. First, we go out to Marcos in Oakland, and Brett, he wants to know this of you. Do you know anything about fantasy sports, like football or baseball? You know what? By now, I should. I don't. Uh, Both my brothers play it. I've been encouraged by many to get into it. I haven't. I've got no clue what it entails. I see people before the football season starts, they're always having these these parties, these fantasy parties before the baseball season. I've never done any of it. Who knows? I'll never say never. So uh, it may be in my future. I would love to have Brett Boone on my fantasy football league. I'll tell you that much right now. All right. Back here we go. This is from Scott in Pittsburgh. Brett, how do you know when to have a pop-up slide and what is its purpose? Pop-up slide. Let's see. That pop-up slide is, is kind of, uh, let's see. You know you're safe. You don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to slide and be laying on the ground. It's very simple. It, it requires a slide, but 
there's no risk of being tagged out. So we can just slide and pop up. Um, or when the play's away from you, give you an example, ball down the left field line, uh, you're rounded first base. The shortstop is on the left fielder side of the bag. So he's going to catch the ball coming from the left fielder and turn to tag you. So you're not in the play. If you're, if you, another example would be first baseman throwing the ball to the second baseman. Well, now you're right in the middle of the play. That's not going to be a pop-up slide. He's going to be all up in your grill. So pop-up slide, usually when it's a, you know, a double uh, where it's, it's pretty obvious you're going to be safe, but not to the point where you can just jog in the second base. I guess that's, that would be the, the best way to put it. All right, and the safe way to put it is that we want to thank everybody for listening to this here Brett Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Boone podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content, that's all Liz Landry. Please share the Boone podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.